Hey, before we jump into the podcast, just want to give a quick reminder, if you're new here to the Holistic Nootropics podcast, to please just take a quick second and subscribe to the podcast. It takes literally a second to do. Just hit the subscribe button right there in your podcast player. Also, if you want to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you like to actually watch the podcast, you can actually do that over on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com, search Holistic Nootropics, You'll see our page pop up. Subscribe to that. Hit the little bell icon so you can get notified every single time new videos drop because we don't just do podcasts over there. We do product reviews. We do all kinds of nootropic and biohacking and holistic health topical videos. So go on over, check us out on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. And for all things nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking related, go on over to holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we talk about using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name's Eric. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. And today on the podcast, I have Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Her recent interests have focused on the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and disease, with a special emphasis on the pervasive herbicide glyphosate and the mineral sulfur. Since 2008, she has authored over three dozen peer-reviewed journal papers on these topics. She is currently writing a book, or she actually has finished the book, uh, all about glyphosate titled Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and Environment, which is expected to be released by Chelsea Green Publishers on July 1st, 2021. And Stephanie, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. This is great. This is, uh, I mean, it's such great timing that, you know, your book is being released and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's so Beautiful much going book. on. <laughs> I have it right there's, here. That's, that's a great, legacy. that is a yeah, cool looking so cover too. I'm excited that it's coming out and uh, hoping that people will wake up because it's a very serious topic. Yeah, this is, this is such a, a pressing topic. That's why I was so excited to get you on because you're the only person I hear talking about, uh, you know, this glyphosate from such a, from such a well-researched perspective, it seems like you are the leading voice on this topic and it's slowly trickling down, you know, in my world, definitely in the whole holistic health space and, you know, amongst practitioners and amongst people who are really into holistic health and functional health and wellness, but it doesn't seem like it's hit the, the mainstream yet. So I'm really curious, you know, because you have such an interesting background that at first wasn't focused on health and wellness, you know, how you made your way from where you started into the space you are in now. Yes, it's quite a story. And certainly most of my career was uh, hacking computer code to to build uh, systems that are precursors to Amazon's Echo and the iPhone series. So, uh, you know, sort of speech understanding systems that allow you to converse with the computer. So very, very different um, activities back then compared to now. And it was really around 2006, 2007 timeframe that I got concerned about watching the rates of autism go up. I was uh, wondering what was going on. And I knew it, you know, they were saying, oh, it's a genetic disease. And here's these genes we're finding, you know, and finding lots of genes, each one accounting for a tiny percentage of the autistic cases. So it was starting to be a real mess as far as trying to figure out how genetics was causing autism. And genetics doesn't cause epidemics. So it was clearly an epidemic. And there was clearly something in the environment that was causing it. And I just decided, well, I'm just going to take a look because I care about the children and I want to uh, figure out and get this to stop because it's really getting it's getting worse and worse. And now, I mean, New Jersey, some parts of New Jersey, just shocking rates of autism. But overall, right now in the, in the country, uh, 12 year olds, one in 54. I mean, that is a huge, huge number of children that are suffering from autism, which can be extremely debilitating. Many of them can't speak. It's a very serious condition that is overwhelming our school systems. And I think it's actually perhaps the biggest crisis we face right now. We have all these crises with climate change and the COVID-19 and all this stuff, you know, but, um, but autism is our future because we're going to have lots and lots of adults with autism over time. Right now, they're already graduating out of childhood. The early 
wave. You know, it's going to get worse and worse every year with adults coming out, uh, no way to take care of them. And then more children being diagnosed and increasing numbers every year. I mean, it's really a catastrophe. And the government doesn't even seem to be aware that there's a problem. So this really upsets me. So anyway, I was focused on that. And I systematically started looking at things. I was concerned about vaccines. And I do think they play a role uh, in the autism. And um, I was looking at other toxic chemicals and pretty much striking out. I kind of thought, well, maybe too many antibiotics, uh, because clearly there was a gut problem. There were really lots of issues with the gut associated with autism. And of course, there's the gut-brain axis, which I'm hoping we'll talk about quite a bit here today. But um, when you mess up the gut, you mess up the brain, because there's lots and lots of communication between the gut and the brain. And um, so anyway, I, I was just totally lucky in 2012 to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber was speaking about glyphosate. And at that point, I hadn't even considered Roundup. I, like everybody else, I thought it was safe. Uh, but he presented to our presentation and he claimed that glyphosate is much more toxic than we, we realize that we've been deceived, the government's been deceived, and it needs to be tightly regulated, if not banned. I mean, he was very uh, passionate about his topic. He still is. Uh, Professor Huber is retired from Purdue, an expert in plant pathology. And um, he has uh, is still active at over 80 years old and still going around the world talking about glyphosate. So I really, really admire him. And uh, he was my window into this whole story. And I basically didn't look back. I, I listened to that presentation. I thought, oh, my God, this is it. I really felt an epiphany at that moment because he talked about the gut microbiome getting messed up by glyphosate, the chelation of minerals. And I knew that autistic kids have a lot of issues with uh, their, not handling their min minerals correctly mineral deficiencies, mineral toxicities kind of at the same time. So, um, and then, you know, the serotonin and melatonin, these are all coming out of the pathway that glyphosate disrupts in the gut microbiome. So we're getting deficiencies in certain critical brain, uh, you know, neurotropic things that are very, very important for the health of the brain are being depleted by glyphosate. And then it has all these problems with uh, causing mitochondrial dysfunction and reactive oxygen species causing stress to the liver and the liver can't detoxify things. And so other things become more toxic than they would otherwise be. And it's just an incredible cascade. So I was like, wow, this is it. And went back and started reading about glyphosate. And shortly thereafter, I came upon this um, paper by Seralini, Professor Seralini in France with uh, collaborators, uh, a stunning paper that showed low dose glyphosate over the lifespan of rats caused serious problems. And this was a brand new idea at that time, because previous to that, in fact, all the evaluations were done at high doses. They, they kind of argued the dose makes the poison. The industry wanted to get it approved way back in the 1970s. And their idea was um, if it's not showing toxicity at high doses, then it's not going to show toxicity at lower doses either. So you don't have to look at those lower doses. That turns out not to be true for endocrine disruptors. And it turns out that glyphosate is an endocrine disruptor. And that's become very clear now. But prior to these, this study by Seralini, People were not studying glyphosate at low dose. They thought they'd find nothing. What's the point? It's a waste of money, you know? And so he really opened a door there with that paper, which actually got retracted under pressure for illegitimate reasons and then got republished, fortunately. So it's a legitimate paper. Shows that these uh, female rats had massive mammary tumors by the end of the experiment. You know, it took time after. So there was the other thing is three months. They said, well, if you don't see anything by three months then you're good to go, the chemical's safe. And glyphosate is a slow kill. And I talk about that in my book. So by three months, they weren't really seeing any obvious difference. They were feeding these rats a low dose of glyphosate. You know, it was a below regulatory limits over their entire lifespan. Four months, they started to have problems. And by the end of their lifespan, they had a shortened lifespan. They had liver problems, kidney problems, uh, shortened life. Yeah, I said shortened lifespan, re reproductive issues. You know, lots of things showed up, but it took time. Man, uh, I mean, I can see that. And I'm curious, what is there a year or like a, a, a time span where the use of glyphosate commercially became ramped up, you know? Because, oh, absolutely. And, and when is that? Yeah, so what happened was in the late 1990s, they were using it, but it was sort of modestly used up until the late 1990s. And then they discovered they, they were doing this research to create these genetically modified plants. They learned how to insert a bacterial gene into the plant genome in order to provide a resistance to, to glyphosate. So they figured out glyphosate is suppressing this enzyme, which is called EPSP synthase, which is in this pathway called the shikimate pathway. Very, very important pathway for all plants and also for many microbes, it turns out. And so um, 
they realized that uh, if they could, pro there was, they found a microbe that had a version of this enzyme that was insensitive to glyphosate. So they just gave these plants that version of the enzyme. And that made them able to, to, to grow pretty much okay with glyphosate exposure. So then they could just engineer the plant to be resistant and then they could spray the glyphosate all over the crop and it wouldn't die. They killed off all the weeds, but the crop thrived. So that was like a really big boon to agriculture. They were very excited. And they started using, they had GMO Roundup Ready corn, soy, canola, sugar beets, alfalfa, uh, cotton. You know, so there's a lot of GMO Roundup Ready crops that are now, um, you know, a major part of the crop of most of these species is now GMO engineered to resist glyphosate in this country. And, um, and they're being sprayed with glyphosate. The glyphosate's accumulating in, in the plant tissue and accumulating in the foods that are derived from those crops. So we've got all kinds of glyphosate showing up in our food. Again, the U.S. government doesn't bother to measure because they say it's safe. It's not a problem. We don't care. We know it's there. But, you know, various activist organizations are testing it and they're finding it in Oreo cookies and goldfish crackers and Cheerios. I mean, all these foods that kids love are loaded up with glyphosate. And it's not just the GMO crops either. People think, oh, non-GMO, I'll be safe. I'm buying non-GMO. That is not true at all. In fact, the highest levels are showing up in some of the non-GMO crops, including, for example, Cheerios. So oats and wheat, so bread. Um, you know, we have an epidemic in celiac disease, which I think is a direct consequence of glyphosate in the wheat, because these crops were sprayed right before harvest as a desiccant. You know, the wheat, the oats, the, um, the, the uh, garbanzo beans, the chickpeas, you know, all these legumes, um, and some of the seeds, they're sprayed right before harvest. So they're getting the highest levels, even higher than the levels in the GMO crops. So is this a thing, because you know, I think about this a lot where, you know, the obesity epidemic, for instance, right? Or the, and the diabetes epidemic, meta yes. metabolism epidemic, um, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't so much of an epidemic, right? It was- No, no. Was I remember when I was a child, you hardly ever saw somebody who was obese. Mm -hmm. It was rare. And could that be because now the use of glyphosate is so prevalent? I absolutely think so. I think glyphosate is probably the biggest and by far the biggest uh, contributor to the obesity epidemic and also diabetes. They go together. And if you watch around the world, when you see as soon as a country starts adopting a Western diet and starts eating processed foods, they start gaining weight. And it's quite striking in Africa. I did actually studied Africa and it's South Africa and the African countries along the Mediterranean coast. They all have an obesity problem. And there's a huge gap between them and the rest of Africa where their people are mostly skinny. You know, very, very big difference in the average um, BM, uh, body mass index of the, um, of the population in countries where glyphosate is hardly used at all. And they have, you know, small farms and they eat mostly whole foods versus South Africa has a pretty major presence with um, GMO maize, which is corn. They, they grow a lot of GMO crops and they, and they eat a lot of this uh, glyphosate contaminated food in South Africa. The Mediterranean coast imports a lot of their food because it's all desert there and they can't grow really grow enough food to feed the the, uh, the country. So they end up importing, you know, from Western countries, which are heavily using glyphosate in their, you know, industrial based agricultural methods. It's really the industrial agriculture that I would put the finger on as the problem. And I believe we have to learn from Africa and go back in our country to small family farms. I think that's a, an important part of the answer is to return to the small family farm that's organic. Yeah. And so maybe that kind of explains to like the idea of the French paradox or, you know, like if you go somewhere to if you go to somewhere like Thailand or Japan and they eat noodles and rice and yes. I mean, they're skinny. Right. right. But then here the, you see people eating noodles and rice and that's where a lot of the obesity comes from here. Absolutely. And those are going to be contaminated with glyphosate and the glyphosate is going to disrupt their metabolism. So they can't metabolize fats in their body. And also they have to store toxic chemicals in those fats because glyphosate disrupts the enzymes that detoxify fat soluble toxins. And we have a lot of other stuff besides glyphosate. And if we, if our body can't get rid of it because they can't make it uh, water soluble, they can't, the enzymes that would make it water soluble aren't working because they're being destroyed by glyphosate. So the, the those tox, other toxic chemicals end up getting stored in abdominal fat. It's a place to hide it away so that it won't affect the body. So if you try to lose weight, lots of times you'll get sick if you're carrying a lot of toxins in your, in your fat. So, so you're saying the other chemicals that you're exposed to because of glyphosate, actually yes. they can't get out of your body because yes. of glyphosate. Man, that is wicked. 
that's really that's, wicked. That's really wicked because, you know, one thing I've been very cognizant of over the last few years is the impact of environmental chemicals. You know, I've told this story a few times on the podcast, but like I run this um, Great Plains uh, environmental mm -hmm. uh, toxins test. And it's interesting to see like the toxins that you urinate out and how they correlate to what's going on in your environment. You know, I live in Puerto Rico and people shoot fireworks off all the time. You know, fast forward to me taking that test, I'm, you know, urinating out uh, firework chemicals, right? Or um, I know mm -hmm. another big one is people who do CrossFit and they're in these uh, boxes with the little rubber mats or at the gyms with the rubber mats. That's a chemical it tests for too. And some people, yeah, some people yes. test high for that. I tested high for that. But to know now that glyphosate, like you should be able to get that stuff out of your body, but glyphosate is essentially shutting down the enzyme that would allow you to do that. That really just adds a whole other layer to it. It certainly does. And I think that's, and even to metabolize drugs, you know, there's a whole class of enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes, a very, very important class of enzymes. And glyphosate has been shown to, to suppress them categorically, like all of them. And one of them is aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen. And uh, it's been shown experimentally that it suppresses aromatase. And it's also been shown experimentally that it causes uh, excess testosterone expression in utero. When, you're, when the woman's pregnant, the, the fetus is exposed to too much testosterone because the testosterone can't get converted to estrogen. You know, there's all this timing that goes on with these hormones. It's critically important for the things to happen at the right time to, to make a development work properly. You know, and then there's an, there's an, and vitamin D, in fact, gets activated by cytochrome people with 50 enzymes. We have an epidemic in vitamin D deficiency today. I think it's because it can't be activated in the liver. The liver and the kidney use cyp enzymes, two steps to turn the original vitamin D that's produced by sunlight into the active form. So when those enzymes get blocked, vitamin D becomes, becomes deficient because you can't convert it to its active form. And um, it's also um, vitamin A, retinoic acid, which is super critical during development. It is very critical timing. You know, it's expressed, it, does, it causes things to happen, and then it's taken away by enzymes that metabolize it, and then those, those things stop, you go on to the next stage. When the things that take it away aren't working, you get too much vitamin A, and it causes, you know, teratogenicity, it causes deformed, uh, deformed development. So you end up with uh, neural crest issues like, um, microcephaly, you know, anencephaly, no brain, or spina bifida. I mean, these are really nasty developmental problems that can show up when the retinoic acid is not properly managed during pregnancy. And that's, uh, it, it needs cyp enzymes to remove it. So I think that's another uh, critical piece of the puzzle. Glyphosate is messing up so many things. And many drugs are detoxed by uh, cyp enzymes. There are people who get a very bad reaction to um, pharmaceutical drugs that are for um, depression, that treat depression, there are certain people that ha have just cyp enzymes that aren't working that would normally clear that drug and the drug becomes toxic and they get this AA kinesthesia. There's like this sort of jerky movements and they can't stop and they can get sort of like jumping out of their skin. They can get really, really agitated and you know pretty much uh, ruined by a toxic drug reaction because of certain cyp enzymes not working. So it's, I mean, they're just huge. Also, they make a bile acid. So that's going to mess up fat digestion because the cyp enzymes are unable to make enough bile acids to digest fats. And that's a very important part of digestion that most people don't even think about, but it, it's a, it plays a huge role. If you're not making bile, I mean, that's like the, that's like your digestive tract's internal uh, cleaner, you know? Yes. And so yes. Uh, that, Very important. And, and then you see a lot of these uh, digestive issues just exploding and uh, it could be because of glyphosate. Yes, I think so. I mean, we just have so many problems with the gut these days and, and so many papers are being written and actually they're becoming very smart at analyzing. It's quite fascinating what they can do with the technology. Really, um, you know, um, computer science, right? Sort of applying massive analysis of, uh, of the gut uh, microbiome collectively, all the genetics in, the, in all the microbes piled together and then just do this kind of collective study of all the enzymes that are expressed. You get these really complicated papers that show all this data that's quite overwhelming. And you can see differences in how, what's happening with people who have you know, rheumatoid arthritis versus people who have um, dementia. I mean, they're finding all these sort of subtleties of differences in the 
in the enzymatic expression collectively over the entire gut microbiome. And, and looking at things like the short chain fatty acids, which I've studied quite a bit, that's also another very interesting story that connects to glyphosate, because there are these short chain fatty acids that are produced by the gut, uh, the gut microbiome from uh, so what, what we consider to be undigestible roughage, you know, so when you eat roughage and your body isn't able to break it down, but these microbes are, and they convert it into these uh, acetate, um, butyrate and, um, and um, propionate, you know about those? Yeah. 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 Because they're really important because butyrate needs to be, you need to have a lot of butyrate and you don't want to have a lot of propionate. Propionate is actually very strongly linked to, to autism. Mm. So I was very interested in that. And glyphosate has been shown to mess up. First of all, the overall amount is reduced of these short chain fatty acids, but also in particular, propionate is overexpressed and butyrate is underexpressed in the context of glyphosate exposure. And that's really bad because that's the opposite of what you want. Butyrate deficiency is linked to a uh, you know, these um, inflammatory bowel diseases like uh, colitis, you know. Right. And so when you, uh, when you have glyphosate in your system, like you eat something with glyphosate, um, you know, and then it's doing this work in your, you know, in your gut and it's throwing off the balance of your short chain or it's, it's disrupting the production of the good short chain fatty acid, overexpressing the bad fatty acid, um, I would imagine too, at that point, then, uh, you know, the, the gut brain connection, you know, exactly. The, that ability. kicks in. Yes. Right. So how does that work at that point? Yeah. Well, of course the, the, there's a lot of communication channels, right? There's the vagus nerve and there's just the microbes releasing chemicals that can travel to the brain through the blood stream or through the lymph system. And actually the propionate, you know, makes its way to the brain and, and they've been, they've shown in studies that if you just, uh, uh, basically inject propionate into the brain of a, of a, of a mouse that you will make that mouse autistic. So they know that propionate in the brain uh, causes autism basically, uh, which I find very interesting. And of course the clostridia also produce all kinds of interesting uh, poly, you know, there's sort of these phenolic compounds that are toxic. Um, there's some studies of very interesting studies on, on rat mice that have shown um, these mice are engineered. There's actually these mice that have been, uh, created that have been bred true for autism, like these, these autistic mice. And, um, and they study them to find out what's going on with their gut and their brain. And they're finding they have these clostridia uh, species that are producing these toxic phenolic compounds um, that are going to the brain and, and disrupting the brain's function. You know, toxic to the brain, basically these phenolic compounds that are being produced by, these, um, by the microbes in the gut of these, um, of these mice. And, um, and, and glyphosate, it, uh, it, it studies on other animals have shown that glyphosate preferentially kills, it disrupts the gut microbiome, it preferentially kills bifidobacteria in particular, and also lactobacillus. And both of those are really, really important in the infant gut. They're, they're foundational. And then clostridia and salmonella are species that are hardy against glyphosate. They thrive much better than those other species. So they end up becoming dominant in the gut and then producing these metabolites that are toxic. And then on top of that, glyphosate interferes with the liver's ability to detoxify those toxic phenols that the, that the clostridia are producing. So it's a it's the comedy of errors, really, that glyphosate is disrupting this and that and the other, and all of it is adding up together to cause exposure in the brain to toxic uh, chemicals that are produced by the gut microbes. Also, for example, the uh, yeast overgrowth, the candida, that's a big problem that also shows up with glyphosate. And that's um, a complicated story, but there's um, good evidence that glyphosate well, first of all, it just kills bacteria preferentially over yeast. So the yeast get to grow because the bacteria are killed, but also it, it disrupts the ability to, to um, metabolize both proteins and fats. So these kids often really love sugar. I mean, they really like to eat carbohydrates because the proteins and fats are not getting digested well. And if they eat a lot of protein, it doesn't get digested. It ends up being these peptides that can cause autoimmune disease. And those can end up in the, uh, in the lower gut and end up making the pH of the gut too high because of the ammonia, there are microbes in the gut that are struggling to break down these peptides that should have gotten broke, broken down earlier, but the human enzymes are busted. So the, um, the, the gut pH goes up and that's actually what causes butyrate to go down because the butyrate needs a more acidic pH. So it's all very complicated, but it all ties together in this giant puzzle. And um, the net result is this imbalance in these fatty acids and the production of these toxic chemicals by both the yeast, the candida produced toxic uh, metabolites and the um, clostridia do. I mean, all these sort of 
pathogenic species. Uh, and those metabolites are circulating to the brain. And that's when you start seeing all of these autoimmune, like even if your autoimmune situation is not, uh, you know, dire, like, you know, maybe you don't have multiple sclerosis, but there's plenty of people walking around that have really bad eczema, you know, for instance. Yes, and exactly. Uh, eczema is a big one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know plenty of people that are dealing, it just kind of pops up out of nowhere, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or any name your skin issue, right? Because that's directly right. tied to the gut. Um, and then the other thing too is, uh, you know, you start seeing, I mean, just this explosion of anxiety and depression. Right. And yes, exactly. That's actually very strongly correlated. So I've worked together with Nancy Swanson in particular. Um, she has a PhD in physics and she and I collaborated on a number of papers and we looked at uh, data on a disease uh, prevalence, you know, over time and tried to uh, compare it to the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. And she wrote her original paper was before she knew me. Uh, well, she started it before she knew me, but she, uh, her original paper is amazing with some other collaborators. It has like almost 30 different um, diagrams, figures in it that show correlations, amazing correlations between the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops in the United States and the rise in all these diseases. This includes diabetes and obesity but also Alzheimer's and autism, perfect match. And um, also some cancers like thyroid cancer, and um, pancreatic cancer. And of course, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is one where they've won all those lawsuits. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then liver disease, kidney disease, all these things are going up. And we, so she and I wrote a paper where we looked at um, autism. Well, autism we'd looked at before, but autism is traumatic, but also ADHD. We looked at sleep disorder. Um, we looked at schizophrenia. Um, we looked at um, what's the name of that paper, by the way. Oh, <laughs> I'll have to look it up. I don't have it off the top. No of my worries. Head. No worries. You've yeah. only you've only done like 30 of them. So like yes. uh, uh, if, I, uh, you, if you could get me I, that so I can link to it. Yeah, that'd be actually, great. you should link to it. That would be perfect. Yeah, I like yeah. to do that because it has a lot of good graphs in there and it's quite distri- striking. And you know that sleep disorder is also connected to most of these diseases. These anxiety. Anxiety was another one that was going up exactly in step ADHD, anxiety, sleep disorder. We showed all of those in that paper. And I'm trying to think that was probably the pituitary. I have to. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Pineal gland. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I think, you know, I'm not sure which paper it was actually. I have to go back and look. No <laughs> worries. I did several together. So uh, I've, I've written a lot of papers, as you know, I did another one on ALS, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease together with a, a Greg Nye. He and I have been collaborating on a number of papers and we're really having a good time. He's a, also an expert on sulfur. So we really resonate and we really enjoy working together. So we've been, we just uh, published a paper on the messenger RNA vaccines um, together, oh, okay. which is another whole story, but. I had Greg on uh, a couple months ago. Uh, very ah, sure yes. We were talking about sulfur as well. Um, he did mention that he's been working with you on this. Um, and I, you know, I, I've heard you talk on other podcasts, so I knew you was the glyphosate person, but then I, he started introducing this idea of the connection of glyphosate and sulfur toxicity. Um, and I really started geeking out on this sulfur, uh, toxicity idea. Um, maybe you can go into a little bit of that as well and explain like yes. why that is such a problem. Yes, I think it's central, actually. And I think it's the issue is sulfate. Uh, the dominant issue is sulfate. I mean, it's also, of course, glutathione, which is a antioxidant, a very, very important antioxidant in the liver and, and also in the brain and everywhere else, pretty much. Yeah, I'm sure you know about glutathione. Mm-hmm. Um, glyphosate uh, this, uh, suppresses uh, the levels of glutathione in the liver and also makes glutathione end up oxidized. So you have too much of the GSSG as opposed mm-hmm. to the GSH, which is really critical because you need the GSH in order for it to work as you probably know, the reduced form versus the oxidized form where there's two glutathione molecules that join hands at the sulfurs, the two sulfurs connect up. So these people Um, that are taking, you know, handfuls of glutathione supplements, but they have not addressed the, the glyphosate problem. Are they compounding that, that problem for themselves? Well, yeah, it could be because they're ending up with this useless form of glutathione, which is oxidized. I mean, that's the problem is that it gets oxidized and then it's not useful anymore. Glyphosate disrupts the enzymes that keep glutathione in its reduced state. And, um, and that's absolutely crucial for the health of the mitochondria. So it's a, really a train wreck for the mitochondria. And many studies have shown that glyphosate causes mitochondrial damage. And Greg and I are very interested in that topic, as you probably know, and we're working out the details of how that happens, but it's mostly having to do with um, a class of enzymes called flavoproteins. And I talk about this a lot in my book, the flavoproteins, they're really interesting enzymes, and they depend on 
nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD, mm-hmm. and also FAD is what gives them the name flavoprotein, uh, flavin adenine dinucleotide. You've probably heard of these FAD and NAD. Mm-hmm. Uh, crit- critical molecules for uh, metabolism. They're, they're, they basically um, carry around hydrogen atoms and pass them around uh, to cause all these different activities to happen that are changing molecules into other things. You know, So there's all this oxidizing, reducing, oxidative re- reduction reactions that mo- many of them depend on this NAD and FAD. So this um, is so just, important. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't yeah, interrupt you. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please do. Oh, I was just going to say, because, uh, you know, like I've been really getting into this, uh, you know, this anti-aging biohacking space for a little bit. And the whole thing is predicated off of NAD production. It's, pr- it's predicated off of mitochondria, but it's also predicated off of specifically NAD. So you see people taking these precursors like NMN, NR. Um, there's yeah, another one I can't remember the name of, but it, again, it sounds like if you don't if you don't take care of the glyphosate house and you optimize your sulfur metabolism, I mean, you're just you're you're not getting anywhere with the whole thing. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's all so complicated and glyphosate messes up so many things that you really can't do anything other than get rid of the glyphosate. That's the only pathway you're going to find to get yourself healthy again, I think, is to get rid of the glyphosate. And the NAD, so that, that comes from niacin. It actually comes out of the um, shikimate pathway. You know, both of them come out of the shikimate pathway, which is this pathway that glyphosate disrupts in the microbiome. The microbiome produces these three aromatic amino acids, uh, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine, uh, through that shikimate pathway, but it also leads to tryptophan is a precursor to NAD. So when those are reduced, NAD is reduced. So not only is there an inadequate supply, I mean, this is, this is the two vitamins, niacin and, and the riboflavin are well known as vitamins. So those are corresponding to NAD and FAD. So um, people are taking those vitamins or eating, you know, foods that have a lot of those in them. It's definitely recommended because you really want to have a lot of those. Those molecules are so important for your metabolic health. Um, but the thing is that it's not just enough to have the molecule. It has to be able to go from H to not H and there's NADH, NAD plus, and then there's NADPH, NADP plus. There's those four forms of NAD. All of them are important, but to move back and forth between the plus and the H is really, really important. That's what those flavoproteins do. And they are disrupted by glyphosate. And I talk about in my book is specifically how, which is really, really interesting. It's a theory that I have that glyphosate is substituting for glycine, the amino acid glycine during protein synthesis. And those um, proteins, those flavoproteins have these, uh, these motifs, you know, at the place where they bind NAD and the place where they bind FAD, they have these motifs that are glycine rich. So it's called a GXX, GXXG motif, for example. There's these patterns where there's three glycines that are highly preserved in these in all these flavoproteins. There's three hydrogens at the places where they bind these FAD and NAD. So it's um, glyphosate, I think, is getting in there in place of uh, one of those glycines. And then it's throwing its methylphosphonate unit into the spot where the phosphate is supposed to bind. So it messes up the binding of NAD. It messes up the binding of FAD. And that means these enzymes can't work. And these enzymes are just incredibly important in order to be, make the mitochondria healthy because they're delivering protons to the mitochondria, which then go into the intermembrane space and drive the ATPase pumps. So the pumps get messed up by glyphosate, the ATPase pumps, and you can't make enough ATP. You become energy deficient, you become exhausted. Wow. And then you have chronic fatigue, depression, all that stuff. Oh man, this is, yeah. See, this is why, this is why I wanted to talk to you about this stuff because, um, you know, like in the nootropic space, uh, in the biohacking space, everybody wants to have this simple answer. It's like, you know, Hey, you need more serotonin. So take some tryptophan, you know, Mm -hmm. or you need some dopamine, take some L tyrosine and, you know, just that explanation you gave right there explains why that's that that's so that doesn't work because you know what you might actually have is you might actually have this this hijacking you know this hijacking molecule of glyphosate you know bumping its way in where there's supposed to be glycine molecules and throwing off the whole the whole process of atp production and it doesn't matter how much precursors of whatever neurotransmitter you want um, that you take, it, it, you know, you, you, you're not going to get anywhere because this glyphosate is throwing everything off. 
Right. And the other thing that's really problematic is that there are certain, you know, a lot of times en enzymatic reactions have an intermediate phase where a product is produced. It's highly reactive. And normally one of these flavoproteins will grab it and immediately turn it into something else that's not reactive. But if the flavoprotein is broken, then that highly reactive molecule sticks around and starts messing up, you know, your, your lipids and your proteins. It just starts causing all kinds of damage to the molecules in the cell that then causes the cell to be in really big stress and end up having to shut down with apoptosis, you know, because it's getting destroyed by all these free radicals that are there because those enzymes that would usually grab it right away and take it to where it wants to go aren't working. And then it just goes off on a different path. And in fact, a really good example of that is arachidonic acid. I'm finding, I'm finding that to be a very, very interesting molecule. I don't know if you have looked into arachidonic acid at all. No, please explain. Yeah, this is one that Dr. Mercola, I don't know if you know Dr. Mercola, he's oh, yeah. a yeah, naturopath. So he's been big on, he's actually written a whole book that's about to come out, I think, uh, centered on arachidonic acid. He thinks it's really bad for you. I mean, it's an essential um, fat. It's, a, it's an omega-6 fat, arachidonic acid, uh, very common, you know, in our food. Um, and, and useful in our body. But the thing is that um, the fatty acids are really complex in terms of all their reactions and where they can go and all these different molecules that are made. It's quite, your eyes glaze over if you try to read these papers because there's all these different molecules. But arachidonic acid basically has sort of, I, I see it as three different ways it can go. And, and one way is uh, leukotrienes, and then there's a cyc so there's lipoxygenase, cyclooxygenase, and then there's the cytochrome P450 enzyme, those three pathways. And one path pathway produces these leukotrienes, and a second pathway produces, um, and I'm forgetting what it is, something else that's bad. So these two things that are coming out of two of the pathways are induce uh, um, inflammation, they induce inflammation, which of course causes pain and all that stuff, it's, you know, swelling and pain and all those kinds of nasty things. The third pathway is the cytochrome P450 pathway. Arachidonic acid gets turned into an endogenous cannabinoid. Endogenous cannabinoid. So that means, you know, we have all this popularity of taking CBD for, for pain, right? And even for issues with the brain, depression, CBD is like a miracle worker. It's really caught on fire. You have an ability, your body makes its own version of CBD. Essentially, it's an endogenous cannabinoid that would serve the purpose of what CBD is trying to do. So in other words, that pathway is blocked by glyphosate because it's a cytochrome P450 pathway. And that forces arachidonic acid to go down those other pathways that, cause, that induce inflammation and cause pain. So the exact opposite of what you would get if the CYP enzyme were working. So, the, so basically... If this enzyme's working correctly, arachidonic acid's not as big of a problem. Exactly. Especially, so, especially considering it it's in be, so much food or whatever, it might even be beneficial because it's oh, going to okay. help you to have this endogenous cannabinoid, which may, which is a feel-good hormone. Really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's happy. The arachidonic acid is going to make you feel good if it's able to go through that type enzyme pathway. But because glyphosate's messing that up. It goes the other direction. And this is true of many, many things. I think even some of the antioxidants that people are taking in large quantities, you know, all these um, like quercetin and, and um, uh, retinol, uh, what is it called? Uh, resveratrol, you know, all these kinds of, or even just eating a lot of herbs, you know, you're getting a lot of these complicated phenolic compounds, polyphenols and flavonoids, you know, those are all similar to actually NAD and FAD. They have these very interesting ring structures that, support uh, a lot of different reactions, you know, they're really important for metabolism, but they can backfire too, because you've got broken enzymes. They can get into a, even vitamin C, for example, you know, vitamin C is terrific, right? People are taking hydrose vitamin C, but it can get oxidized and it can become toxic. If you don't, if the enzymes that bring it back down again, aren't working, which is what glyphosate disrupts. It disrupts the enzymes that bring these antioxidants back into their happy state where they can help you. It blocks those. So they end up in their nasty state where they hurt you and they're not beneficial. So you really have to have a healthy working enzymatic system when you take these reactive molecules that would be beneficial if the pathways that are going, you're going to need to make them be beneficial are actually working. So if you, so are there any, I don't know, supplements or, you know, obviously a low glyphosate diet, however you can pull that off is probably the best, but like, are there any supplements out there or products or compounds that uh, you know of that actually help uh, to start getting glyphosate out of your body? 
Yeah, well, I certainly believe in a high sulfur diet. So I love garlic. Garlic is a very nice source of sulfur, an interesting compound of sulfur that is very uh, useful. The red blood cells know how to take the sulfur out of garlic and use it to make sulfate, actually. So uh, I, I'm really targeted towards sulfate because I think sulfate system is completely wrecked by glyphosate, in both the sulfate synthesis, sulfate transport, sulfate transfer from one molecule to another, sulfate delivery, all of those are messed up by glyphosate. And I think sulfate deficiency is a primary uh, factor in all these modern diseases that we're seeing. It's really, really critical. People don't realize the importance of sulfate in the body. Sulfur doesn't even have an, um, a minimum daily requirement. You know, it's like, oh yeah, there's plenty of it. Don't worry about it. But that is not true. And so, um, you know, cruciferous vegetables, um, onions, garlic, uh, seafood, uh, organic eggs, uh, grass-fed beef, you know, there's a some nice uh, animal-based products actually that have sulfur-containing amino acids, which are really important. They have more of them than the plant-based ones do. In fact, taurine only exists in animal-based products. And so taurine is a sulfur-containing amino acid. And I think it's a very useful one for, um, for your sulfur health. So eating a lot of sulfur-containing foods, I, I recommend getting out in the sunlight uh, without sunscreen, without sunglasses. The sun is really a really good catalyst for producing sulfate in the skin. So I think sunlight is very healthy. And so and is, is glyphosate a thing like you can sweat it out? Um, possibly, it actually. I think that's quite, quite possible. So I think sauna might be a good way to get rid of the glyphosate. I actually think that's probably true. Um, it does get gummed up in all the protein. So it goes into your tissues and it can stick around for a really long time. And if, you're, if you're, uh, you know, digestive, your cell's digestive system manages to break apart uh, a protein that has glyphosate in it, then it's going to free up the glyphosate. Now it can go into some other protein and cause some other problems. So there's a constant recycling of the glyphosate in your proteins that is causing all kinds of different issues with your, um, depending upon which protein it ends up in, where it ends up in that protein. Very, very interesting, the possibilities there, because that's one thing I talk about in my book, all these proteins that have these uh, strong dependencies on glycine. Uh, really some interesting examples, for example, the prion protein, which causes mad cow disease and also CKD in humans. Kritzfeldt, Kritzfeldt, Jakob, I always have trouble pronouncing that, CKD, nasty, nasty disease. Um, that one uh, is caused by this prion protein, this folding. And the prion protein is extremely interesting because it has this long, long sequence of GXXX, GXXX, GX. It's a regular pattern of three wildcards between two glycines and then just a regular spacing of these glycines. And it, it creates a... Um, a sort of a glycine zipper motif that allows that protein to form its natural shape, which is an alpha, it's called an alpha helix. These proteins can shape into alpha helices or beta sheets. And the alpha helix is the shape it wants to be healthy, this prion protein. If you start mucking with those glycines and sticking glyphosate in place of them, the zipper un gets undone and the protein changes into beta sheets. And the beta sheets all pack together to make these fibrils that are what's causal, the causal factor in those diseases. So it's a misfolding of the protein. And I suspect that glyphosate is causing that misfolding by substituting for glycine in those prion proteins. And the same applies to many other proteins that are linked to neurodegenerative diseases. Like there's amyloid beta that's linked to um, Alzheimer's disease. That one has four of these GXXXG sequences. And then there's... Um, alpha-synuclein, which is linked to Parkinson's disease. And then there's TDP43, which is linked to ALS. All of these proteins are really mysterious class of proteins. I've been quite fascinated by them because they all form alpha helix helices that go into the membrane. And when those alpha helices unravel and become beta sheets, they become, they go into the cytoplasm and they cause trouble. They end up, it's like this seeding of a crystal. You know, the prion proteins can cause other members of their family or even other proteins that have similar characteristics to misfold and join up with this mess of stuff that then causes damage to the cell and ends up with associated with all these nasty diseases. And I think glyphosate is a causal factor. It is in fact confirmed that glyphosate is usage is going up in step with uh, Parkinson's with in step with Alzheimer's um, autism. I mentioned before, that's probably got a prion component to it as well. And, um, so I think it's just uh, really scary. I think a lot of these, you know, we see all these things going up in prevalence and we, we seem to not 
be particularly concerned about it. And that's what puzzles me. People, old people are getting so much sicker at a younger age than they used to. Yeah. Becoming debilitated, you know, not just mentally, but also physically. You know, you see these people hobbling around, they're obviously in agony as they take a step. And it's just so sad to see so many people suffering with so much pain. And I think that's also because of glyphosate in collagen, because collagen is the most common protein in the body. And it has this long, long sequence of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine. Tremendous opportunity for glyphosate to cause trouble. Okay, so now it's starting to make a little sense to me here because uh, I've been listening to you, Mark, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of mark off the, the sequences and I'm like, okay, the sequences, the sequences, the sequences. <laughs> and now I get it because it's like the more G's in that sequence, the more opportunities for glyphosate to enter itself in. So, uh, yes. so essentially these, um, these what, what would you say, like the proteins with the longer G sequences are more vulnerable to glyphosate, exactly. which is why it's, it's such e a problem. Yeah, either more glycines or critical glycines. For example, myosin. Myosin has 11 glycines that are highly conserved. And there was one in particular, I found a wonderful paper talking about this one glycine within myosin. I think it was at location 699. <laughs> my, my nerdy brain remembers that. Uh, a glycine, and if you change that glycine to alanine, which is a very small change, just add an extra methyl group, it ruins the protein's ability to contract. It goes down to like 2% capacity to contract. And so that's going to cause um, muscle uh, weakness, you know, because your muscles can't contract if you start putting glyphosate into those myosin molecules. Wow. It, it, it just, like, I think about this too. And I, you know, when you first mentioned the idea of it being an endocrine disruptor, then um, we're talking about the problems it causes. Like we're talking about serious problems, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, we're talking about autoimmune disease, but like the day-to-day -day functioning, especially for, uh, you know, younger people, um, you know, teenagers, uh, you know, tweens, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, kids or whatever, um, who are just now starting to experience these hormones for the first time. And yet all they've known is glyphosate in their life. Um, it, it seems like maybe this is also a reason why, you know, the younger generation is dealing with so many of these hormone related, uh, hormone related disorders. Absolutely. And in fact, studies are now are coming out that are showing that when you expose a pregnant rat to glyphosate at doses below regulatory limits, the rat appears to be fine. Her offspring appear to be fine. But when they start having their, their pups and then those pups have their pups down through the generations, you start to see more and more trouble with each new generation, even though only the great-great-grandmother was exposed. It's quite remarkable. There's some new papers coming out that yeah, are showing this, is, this epigenetic effects. Right. So this is the transgenerational uh, epigenetic effect of glyphosate. Yes. And so this means that kids today now, you know, they, they already can go back for those generations in humans because it's been around since, you know, for 45 years. So... Um, is a long time of yeah. exposure that do can you, carry forward. Do you know the, uh, the Pottinger's cat story? Oh, I, I certainly have heard of it and I'm trying to remember what it, what it was. It's, uh, I might butcher it, but it, like the basic idea is there was this guy back in the thirties. He was, a um, he was a doctor and he had a bunch of cats in his, uh, uh, in his backyard. And basically he just ran an experiment and he fed, you know, like he just kind of, uh, uh, what, what do you call it? Like sectioned off the different cats. He had like one group eat, um, you know, fresh meat and fresh milk, one group of cats eat fresh meat and cooked milk, one group of cats, mm. you know what I mean? Cooked meat, fresh milk on and on, whatever. And then in that first generation, he found that, okay, the fresh meat, fresh milk cats were healthier than the ones who ate the cooked meat and, um, uh, cooked milk. Right. Mm. Um, and, uh, but he started to find that in the in the subsequent generations, those changes were even more pronounced. So yes. it actually lasted three generations until the cooked meat, cooked milk cats could no longer reproduce. Wow, that's the, amazing. Yeah. So uh, so I always think about this when we talk about something like yes. like this here, like this transgenerational response where it's like, well, how many more generations can we go? of this glyphosate exposure before we just, before we just stop, before we just have no more ability to. I'm worried to about that. And in fact, I have a, a chapter in my book on reproduction. 
and uh, it's very serious business. And it's been shown directly that it's toxic to the sperm, causing them to lose their mobility. You imagine that with myosin, right? They can't move. Very critical for them. And um, also reduced in, in their numbers. So, um, you know, that's male infertility. On the female side, it's that exposure to testosterone in utero um, that causes this. Uh, there's actually a deform. You know, you can measure this distance in the anogenital genital distance. It's called. It's a marker of, of testosterone exposure. A recent study showed that they actually looked at glyphosate in the urine of the pregnant mom and found there was correlation with more glyphosate with this kind of male-like characteristic in the genetic, in the uh, development of the uh, reproductive organs. And so then that's connected to uh, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, people who have a, a, this long distance metric, which is indicating testosterone exposure in utero, those women end up with irregular periods and they, a lot of them have trouble having children. Wow. That's a very common, that's the most common cause of infertility in women is this polycystic ovary syndrome, which is an epidemic today. Yeah. So I think glyphosate is causing both female and male reproductive issues, as well as, of course, disrupting the development of the fetus, causing things like autism. So that is the stuff that scares me the most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it's like, you know, we hear about reproductive rates and it's like, you know, we're in a reproductive crisis right now, you know, People kind of, uh, you know, I think there's a place for the idea that, okay, hey, people don't want to get married so young. They don't want to have kids yeah. so young. The economy is not favorable to that. I totally get that. But then there's the other real side of it, which is, well, a lot of guys don't have the ability to uh, deliver the sperm. And a lot of women don't have the ability to provide the eggs um, like we could even just 20, 30 years ago. Right. And I think it's going to soon become an issue of concern about whether you're going to produce a child that's a major, major disabilities, you know, like autism. Because if we start having these autism rates continuing to go up, it becomes dangerous to get pregnant. If, you, if you're willing to have an autistic child that could really just disrupt your entire life, you know, to take that risk or not. I mean, I think you could become anxious about having a child with the fear that you're going to have an autistic child or some other disability that might be even worse. Well, now, before I let you go, I, I did want to ask you, because um, I, I know you do some research with uh, deuterium depleted water. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always afraid to bring that topic up because it's so complicated. People are they're confused, but that's so important. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've heard this, uh, you know, this being bandied about for the last couple of years and I, I, I hear it and I, I don't really I kind of get it. Um, but like, what are you finding? What, what is deuterium depleted water and, and, and how, how does one get it? And what is its purpose? Yeah. Well, let me just back up a bit and say, talk about those flavoproteins because those flavoproteins that glyphosate disrupts, they are very skilled at when they put a hydrogen onto their product, they can almost guarantee that it's not deuterium. They have a very special skill. It's, it involves the way they're shaped and, and that the FAD plays an important role in making that happen. You transfer the hydrogen over and you have this hydrogen tunneling um, effect, proton tunneling effect that deuterium is really bad at tunneling. So the deuterium doesn't make it through. And you end up with a beautiful hydrogen on that product, which is like NADH or NADPH, right? And eventually that hydrogen gets into the mitochondria. And so the whole, the body obsesses on making sure that the protons in the mitochondria are not deuterons. Deuter deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It has an extra neutron. Hydrogen is the smallest atom, one proton, one electron. Deuterium is one proton, one electron, one neutron. It's a natural uh, element. It's found in seawater at 155, 155 parts per million. So it's in all of our water naturally, deuterium. And uh, deuterium has very interesting physical properties that make it very different from hydrogen. And the body has learned how to distinguish deuterium from hydrogen and actually uses deuterium to advantage to help make structured water. And it needs sulfate to do that. That's so part of the problem is there's not enough sulfate. The sulfate would actually pull the deuterium out of the fluid water and, and capture it in the gel. And that leaves behind in the blood uh, water that's in, decreased in deuterium, enriched in protons which is very important because then those are, the, those are the mobile protons that are going to go into the mitochondria. So that's one way to start to reduce the amount of deuterium in the fluid waters by trapping it in the gel and that you need the sulfate to do that. So when the sulfate's not working, you've got extra deuterium in the blood 
that ends up with a bigger problem for the flavoproteins to get to keep from avoid putting a deuterium in their product. On top of that, the flavoproteins aren't working, so they can't do their job anymore. They can't bind to the FAD, so they can't do their job. So the mitochondria get really stressed because they've got lots of deuterium in their intermembrane space. The deuterium gums up those ATPase pumps. It's kind of like having sugar in the gas tank. The pumps get wrecked by the deuterium and they actually die. They don't work anymore. They have to be remade. New pumps have to be created. There's a lot of these pumps in those mitochondria, thousands of them, and, they, uh, and they're getting wrecked by the deuterium. And then and also that causes them to release these reactive oxygen species, these you know, um, oxygen radicals, which are going to then cause all kinds of damage to the DNA. I mean, the mitochondria get really in trouble. And even I think also the lysosomes, which is where you break down um, damaged molecules and break them down into, into new nutrients that you can use to build new healthy molecules. The, the, that's the digestive system of the cell is in these lysosomes. And those also depend on low deuterium, high hydrogen. And they have mechanisms to do that too, that also depends upon sulfate. So the lack of the sulfate means there's too much deuterium around. And then the inability of the flavoproteins to work properly means that the deuterium is not able to be filtered out of the products that are going into the mitochondria. So the mitochondria get sick because they have too much deuterium. So one thing to do is to drink deuterium depleted water, which will at least reduce it from the, from the start, reduce the amount of deuterium your body has to deal with, trying to get it lower in the fluid water so that you can do a better job with your mitochondria. And so deuterium depleted water is made, is manufactured in, in an interesting way that involves a complicated technology. It's, it's not done through biology. It's done through chemistry, really, or physics, perhaps, more about physics, evaporating the water and condensing it. And they can produce water that's got like only 10 parts per million, as opposed to 155 in natural water. So that's much, much lower. And, um, and then if you can buy this product that's deuterium depleted water, it's expensive, unfortunately. And that's partly because there's very few places that can make it. And at the moment, it has to be shipped from Russia because Russia is the only place where it's mm -hmm. being made. And the Russians were the ones who figured out this deuterium thing, which is so fascinating. I only learned about deuterium in December of 2019, right before COVID hit. And um, I was blown away by it. It's just like life is it. I dropped everything else and started reading all about deuterium. It's been an exciting uh, period for me with all this new um, exposures to all these new topics that are so fun. And as you gather enough information about everything else and the new thing comes in and it fits in very nicely. So it was very clear to me that immediately when I heard about deuterium, it was very clear that glyphosate would mess it up. And, and you, I think that becomes central to glyphosate's toxicity. And if, okay. So if you drink deuterium depleted water, then, I mean, that's like, that's a, a really good spark for the mitochondria. Like that's, that's good fuel. Yeah. Well, that helps you. That helps you to lower the deuterium levels. It's a slow process, right? But there's also hydrogen gas, which is very, very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are saying, I just heard from someone who said that uh, there was a doctor who was got very sick with COVID and they were trying and they, there was a natural path and he was trying all these things and he finally tried hydrogen gas and he found that was very, very effective for him to treat COVID-19 his own himself. Uh, suffering from COVID-19. He used hydrogen gas, which I found really, really interesting because hydrogen gas is a natural way to get low deuterium. It's a lot cheaper than deuterium depleted water. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's there's these products you can buy that can produce this hydrog hydrogenated water that you can drink. Um, and I think that's probably, um, that's so, when I first heard about hydrogen gas, it was before I knew about deuterium. And I was kind of like, that just seems strange. I don't see why hydrogen gas would be useful. I couldn't figure it out, you know, so I was skeptical. But when I realized that it's um, going to be for sure deuterium depleted because deuterium sticks harder, it, it, it binds more strongly to other atoms in the water. And it also is less likely to evaporate because it's heavy. So you have a real preference for hydrogen showing up at protons over deuterons in that hydrogen gas. And so the hydrogen gas itself is actually a source of of a, a really good source of low deuterium hydrogen. It, it becomes, in fact, the gut microbes know how to take it in and make organic matter out of it. They can take hydrogen gas and combine it with carbon to make methane. And methane is CH4. Mm -hmm. And that methane can be turned into methanol and formate. I mean, it's all these different formaldehyde, all these different molecules that come out of that pathway in the gut that starts with hydrogen gas. So there's actually gut microbes that make hydrogen gas. Right. And then there's other microbes that take it back in. It's so interesting. The microbes produce these gases and then the gases are turned back into organic matter that can be serving the host. And they go through that step of gas because that's a way to reduce hydrogen. So I think that's a mechanism the gut microbiome is using 
to uh, help to produce uh, hydrogen-depleted molecules for the host. Now, is using something like uh, like red light or infrared light useful? Like if you obviously don't have the ability to buy deuterium-depleted water or hydrogen gas, um, you know, is there a place, because I, I believe it was Greg who said that, you know, structured water in the, in the cells is also a very potent way to, to fix this, uh, this sulfur metabolism problem. Um, and a way to do that is through red light. He's absolutely right. Yes, infrared light is really useful for growing. In fact, uh, Gerald Pollack is the person who introduced me to the whole space of gelled water, which is another very interesting topic that is worth a deep dive. But Gerald Pollack is an expert on that, and he's written books for the public, Cells, Gels, and the Engine Supply, very nice books for the public that are very accessible for people who don't have a lot of background because that whole, that whole space is very dense. I mean, a lot of the people who write articles are very hard to understand but the gelled water is crucial and the sulfate makes the gelled water it really sustains the gelled water and the red infrared grows it and in his study i read a paper that gerald wrote where he showed four fourfold increased in, in his experimental setup the gelled water increased by fourfold in the presence of red of infrared light it energizes those molecules and somehow helps them to organize into that structure. It's really fascinating. Structured water, I kind of call it liquid ice because ice has a structure that's similar to the structure that's in the structured water. And deuterium helps to hold the structure together. And deuterium stays in the structure because uh, it's a, if the protons get mobilized, it sort of releases protons and creates a battery across its, its boundary with the fluid water. So you end up with, you think of a bowl of jello and you pour some water on top then the jello actually can extrude protons into that water that's up on top. And, um, and those protons will be preferentially protons, not deuterons. So it's, um, it's happening in all over the, the, the blood supply. That's a deuterated gelled water is pushing out the protons and those protons become mobilized and go into the cells and supply, go feed right into the mitochondria and the lysosomes to help them maintain their acid environment because the protons will lower the pH, but also to keep them deuterium depleted. And this is why it's so important to get out in the sunlight and to, you know, find your nearest red light panel and get in front of that. Just, just light therapy in general. So fascinating to me. The yes. The sunlight is beautiful because it's, you know, full spectrum light. And I, I, I've studied this enzyme ENOS. I don't know if Greg mentioned endothelial nitric oxide synthase, because that's a, an enzyme that I kind of zeroed in on early on with respect to making sulfate. And it's a, a theory that I have. And ENOS is known for making nitric oxide. And it's a very important enzyme uh, in, the, um, in the vasculature, you know, all the endothelial cells. They make this endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which makes nitric oxide, which actually uh, lowers the blood pressure. It relaxes the, the vessel wall. It does all kinds of interesting signaling, the nitric oxide. But ENOS has another pathway where I think it makes sulfur dioxide instead of nitric oxide. It can oxidize both sulfur and nitrogen. And it goes into the membrane, which in the membrane it oxidizes sulfur. It can take hydrogen sulfide gas and turn it basically into sulfate because it gets it partway there, sulfur dioxide, and that automatically becomes sulfite. And then there's another enzyme, sulfite oxidase, which converts a sulfite into sulfate. Sulfite oxidase is problematic with glyphosate. Glyphosate is, is, is damaging that enzyme and causes sulfite toxicity as well as sulfate deficiency because of that. And it's a problem with that one enzyme, make, getting it from sulfide to sulfate that so many people um, have. And this is, why, uh, this is why I was taking molybdenum for the yes, uh, right. last couple of months because I was like, oh, let me see what happens. Because I, I do eat a lot of cruciferous vegetables and I was like, maybe I have a sulfur sensitivity. Uh, and yeah. uh, let's, let's try some high dose molybdenum. What do you got to lose, right? Did, um, it, did it work out okay for you? Um, well, uh, I, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's I, really I hard, have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because it, 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 I was trying to see if it, if it fixed a sleep issue. I was like, maybe I have a sleep, maybe there's a sulfur connection to, my, to a sleep issue I have, but it didn't seem to do anything so the you know the the investigation continues but yes. you know i i do i do get the point of of that uh you know of that mineral for sure and i think that the enzyme that makes that molybdenum molybdenum cofactor um is is a sensitive to glyphosate I, I studied it and it looks like it's one of those uh, enzymes that has vulnerabilities to glyphosate so it mm -hmm. could be the enzyme that's making the molybdenum cofactor 
is messed up. Because a lot of people have trouble with the cofactor, and that's why they have sulfide oxidase deficiency, not because of sulfide oxidase being defective, but because the cofactor is. Right. And of course, it also depends on heme, and glyphosate uh, suppresses heme synthesis as well. So that's another angle. Wow. Well, Stephanie, this has been, I mean, such an interesting conversation. I have, I feel like I could ask you so many more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, before <laughs> we wrap up, um, I know people watching this, listening to this are going to want to know how to find you online, how to get your book, uh, drop some info for me here so people can find you and keep in touch with you. Yeah. So I have my personal webpage, stephaniecenter.net, which may be the easiest place to go. And I have a subsection there, which I chose this book, Toxic Legacy, coming out July 1st. Um, Hopefully it'll have impact. I hope you'll like it. I tried to make it uh, more accessible. Uh, it's not quite as technical as I am capable of writing, but I tried to make it more accessible to the general public. So hopefully that worked. Um, fascinating molecule. Um, if, you, if you like biology, this one is a real zinger because it <laughs> really reveals a lot of biology. One of the good things about glyphosate is all these different diseases that it causes, it opens your window on, on how to, to figure out how, what is the causing those diseases, you know, where the metabolic deficiencies are, you can find it through um, just intersecting all these pieces of the puzzle. That's what I did with that book is to uh, gather all the pieces and tell the story for the various diseases that are being affected, I think, by glyphosate. That's amazing. I know I'm going to get that book. I really hope it, it, it shoots to the top of the bestseller list because, uh, <laughs> you know, if it does, I think you'll see a lot of people voting with their dollar and, you know, maybe getting away from some of these foods that are higher in glyphosate and sticking to the more local stuff that yes. is lower in that stuff. And of course, certified organic. I mean, really look for that certified organic label. I imagine, do you have access to that in Puerto Rico pretty much? Certified organic? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> Not really. Yeah, it's I, probably I, harder to do there is, than it is here. It is harder, but uh, luckily we have some farmer's markets around here. I try to, I try to buy groceries mostly from that's grown around here. So, um, uh -huh. Otherwise, we have like regular commercial supermarkets that have the same stuff you find in the States, more expensive. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I try to stick local as much as possible. Uh -huh. Good. But, um, well, Stephanie, th thank you again so much for your time. This has been so interesting. I'm going to have to listen to this a couple of times and take some notes because uh, <laughs> there were a lot of letters. There were a lot of letters that were said. So I have to make yes. sure I write those down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, viewer, if you enjoyed this, be sure to head on over to holisticentropics.com. We're going to have all the show notes for you there. And uh, if you're new here, subscribe to the channel and check out uh, our full library of podcasts that we've had up to this point. Otherwise, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.